So Psalm 86 on page 596. A prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Um, Matthew, I, there was a Bible here. Is that the one you've got? Is there, is there, could I, sorry, are you okay to share you guys at the front? Maybe because someone could pass a Bible forwards for Matthew if we've got any left. We've run out. We've run out. If you've got the Bible, if you followed that brilliant reading, please do have a look at page 596 because it's all there. And I'll try to be referring back to it and basing what I speak from it. Uh, I wonder if you've heard the new song that's been going around London this week. Uh, it's, it's being sung particularly in London, particularly by men, um, and not particularly by men who go to church. Uh, it's gone totally viral. It's been a real awakening. Uh, have you heard it? They say he walks on water. He turns it into wine. Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's the Arsenal number nine. <laughs> now, what do you do with a song like that? I should explain, if you don't know, that Jesus is also the name of a new player at a football club in this city. And he's a very good player, but as far as I know, he has not walked on water and he has not turned water into wine. But of course we have different passions in our lives. Some of us it is a football team, some of us it's our family, some of it's, it's our country. And the challenges of this psalm, it's a brilliant psalm. And I don't blame Matthew at all for stealing most of my main points for his leading today. (laughs) One of the challenges this psalm gives us is to give our priority and our loyalty to God in Christ. There are many things, many people we might want to worship and sing about. 
But David here is putting all of his worship into God. And he is doing it in a difficult situation. We don't see it so much at the beginning, it comes through more at the end. But there are general principles for all of us in whatever we are facing, whatever danger or threats, when things are just not going well. How can we keep our priorities right? Because David gives us a brilliant example in these 17 verses here. Before I go any further, let me pray. Dear Father God, please help us to give reasons for our requests when we pray to you. And please help us to love you from an undivided heart. Love you for who you are, for your real character. Amen. Well, what are psalms? Psalms are songs, psalms are poems, psalms are also prayers. And this one is a prayer of David. And Psalm 86 here starts with great examples of how to bring God's reasons and God's motivations into your prayers. Why should God answer any of your prayers? You Christians are confident in prayer. We teach each other about it. We say in Jesus' name at the end of prayers. Uh, And that's not just a cue for when to say amen when Chris finishes. We know how we should pray, trusting in him. We know we should pray. Uh, We know we ought to do it. It's a bit hard sometimes to do it and remember to do it and keep at it. But I want to ask a slightly different question. Look at it from God's point of view. Why would God answer us? Why would he respond? Because the structure of the first part of this psalm is got a repeated word, this little word, for. I don't know if you noticed it. This is why I needed a copy of the Bible. There's one in verse 4, for I am poor and needy. There's one in verse one, sorry, for I am poor and needy. There's one in verse 2, for I am faithful to you. Uh, there's one in verse 3, for I call to you all day long. And then it skips on. There's another one kind of implied, uh, for I trust in you. But there's another one kind of implied behind the because in verse 7. It's this structure, it's this repeated word of for. It means because. If you're just learning English, sometimes we use, particularly in poetic language, we can use for as in because. And most of the time in the first part of this psalm that David uses the word for or because translated is to explain why God would want to do anything to answer any of his prayers. It's anchoring his requests in God's character and God's priorities. David knows who he is, and David knows who God is. And David also knows that they have a relationship and knows what that relationship is like. And he includes the reasons why God would act on his behalf in his prayers. And I want to suggest to you, before we move on to the other stuff, I want to suggest to you that that is a brilliant model And it will really, really help you. The first four is because David himself says he is poor and needy. Just like the Beatitudes. Do you remember that? When we were looking at Matthew 5 a few uh, months ago. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. David starts by declaring his poverty. Now, uh, in money terms at times he was no doubt poor. And he ended his life in a palace. But spiritually... We are all poor. We cannot bring anything to our relationship with God. We need his generosity towards us. We need his kindness. What could we give? What could we actually give God to get him to do anything for us? The answer is nothing. And that is humbling. And I think many of us would prefer not to say it. 
It isn't the independence we would like to have. Often we functionally, basically think we're okay, we're rich-ish, spiritually we're all right, we've got, we've got a few things sorted out, we've got some understandings. And in fact, if we go too far down that line, we probably stop praying altogether. David doesn't just say this out of politeness as a right way to start the prayer. It's the attitude he has right throughout it. He carries on asking for mercy twice in this first part. He's unafraid to speak again and again and repeatedly of his dependence on God and his need for God to act, for God to do the things that only God can do, because he realizes he is finite, he is limited, he cannot do everything. And indeed, he's probably been saying these things repeatedly because at the end of verse 3, David says, I call out to you all day long. It's a repeated thing. Now, we just need to be a little bit careful here because the Bible does say in other places that we are not going to be heard because of our many, many words. Just saying a prayer many times, like some people use prayer beads, does not always make it more powerful or more likely to be answered. And nor is this a command to repeatedly chant and say the same thing without thinking all day long. But repeating prayers consistently and with meaning from the heart, repeatedly, humbly asking for the same thing is biblical, whether it's several times in a day or over many days and many months and years even. That is a godly pattern. Jesus did it. He certainly did it on the night he was betrayed. Each time we pray, we can be expressing our dependence on God, that he is who he is, that we are who we are, and the kind of relationship that we have. And it is humbling. It is humbling to admit. It's humbling to ask for something that we cannot give or create from ourselves, that only God can make happen. But I want to challenge you to do it. Include your understanding of why God should act when you pray and ask him something. Because that will reset your relationship. It will strengthen your faith. Using the Bible like this shows your humility. Why would God do something for you? Make your requests with with reasons, not just shopping lists. I want this, please God, this, please God, this, please God, this, please God. Use the word because. Use the word for if you want to be poetic and stylish. Because I'm poor. Because I can't do that. Because you are kind. Because you are forgiving and good. Include them even in those short prayers you might say in the day. Prayers at mealtimes. We call it grace in our house. It's a little chance to talk about the character of God and mention it. Of who we are, of who he is and our relationship. At bedtime before we go to sleep before we open the Bible and when we close it again. Why would God want to answer? Bring his character into your prayers. We're not reminding him here of something that he might not be aware of, of course. He hasn't forgotten who he is. He doesn't have a self-awareness gap. It shows us as we speak that we are who we are, that God is who he is and the kind of relationship we have. The second and the the fourth four, looking down at verse 2 and verse 4, are about the trust that uh, David has towards God. And you might want to do that as a kind of model as well. Perhaps you might want to recall something you said in your baptism. Perhaps you might want to bring to mind some point at which you took a stand or you made a sacrifice, something you did. But the ultimate reason 
why God would listen to you is the one that David gives the most focus to in verse 5. God is forgiving. God is good. God is abounding in love. We don't use the word abounding very much. It's a kind of a Bible Christian English word. But we do have a related word we use a little more. Abundance. Loads. To use proper South London language. An abundance of love. It's so great. God's love cannot be limited or counted. And if you are a guest here this morning, know that you can call on this God. Because this love is abounding to all who call. You can have a greater confidence even than David. Because he longed to know what we can find and learn in the New Testament of Jesus. So if you don't know God this morning, try it. Call on him. Pray. And ask for what is on your heart, but from his. For what he cannot do for what he can do and you cannot do. Uh, Verse 8, moving on. Verse 8, slightly bumps. Do you know know this word bump? When you're reading something and it just sort of stops you, it it makes you just stop and think. Matthew Matthew dropped it into his leading earlier. Verse 8, are there many gods or are there one? You see, I would normally expect that the Bible would say there's only one God. But here in verse 8, the Bible seems to be saying that there are many gods. How do we square that? How do we sort that out? How do we work out with all the other people in the world who all seem to believe in, in, other, in other gods? Well, there's perhaps several parts to the answer. The first part is in the rest of verse 8. Because God is supreme. Because God is Because God is better than anything else you can put your trust or confidence in. And he is better because he does things. David takes confidence in this because he is a God who acts. He has deeds. He does stuff. He had seen God help him in the triumph over Goliath. The people of God had seen it all before when God brought them through the Red Sea. Our God, the one we know in Christ, is a God who does deeds. He is supreme. And it's easier to sing the praise of something excellent or someone wonderful, isn't it? A football crowd have to work a bit harder when their team is losing or not playing quite as well as they used to. Well, God is the best. If ever there's going to be someone to praise, it's him. If you find it easier to praise a lesser person, a sports team, a child who's made you proud, than to sing up on Sunday, well, give your affections a bit of an audit. What's actually important to you? Look at your heart. Do you ever use superlatives? Do you ever use EST words? British people come sometimes quite cool, quite reserved. But if you get us on a topic that we really like, for me it's cycling, by the way, but if you get on a topic that you really like, they can, British people can, I'm speaking to the the guests among us, all the people from other countries here, we can actually sometimes use the words like greatest, mightiest, most glorious. Verse 8, among the gods there is none like you, Lord, 
No deeds can compare with yours. The other answer, and it's really helpful that they're so close together. The other part to the answer of why the Bible talks about gods in the plural here is just over in verse 10. Did you see that? For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. And that's because actually when you look at the full and proper definition of who God is and what he's like, only this God, only Yahweh, is the one who repeatedly showed himself to Moses and who helped David repeatedly. Only he reveals and fulfills the full definition of the word. Only he can do the things that God can do. Of course, other nations, other religions claim that other gods are important. And actually, in many times in history, in many places over the world, people worship several gods. This temple that day, another another day. And occasionally, between themselves or in their own heads, wonder who's the most powerful among them. We are freed from those questions because the Bible is clear. We don't spread our bets, hedge our bets, spread our allegiance or our affection between different things because only one of them is God. Only one. And in fact, verse 9, the other nations will eventually come and worship the true and living God. Even in David's time, this was true. When the the good news of Jesus started to move out after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, a man called Paul went to one of the great cities of the world at that time, Athens, and he said this. From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God's plan was always to have the world united in Christ. And David saw part of this even in this psalm before the time of Jesus. He saw a time when all nations would come. Verse 9 is very clear. A time of universal worship of God, of all nations gathered together. And that must have been an enormous comfort to David. The amount of stress in his life, most people would probably have got to the end full of post-traumatic stress disorder. But he, he's able to look with such confidence. He's able to see what's gone on in his life, the narrow escapes. He's able to see the ultimate end for the name of the God he, he worshipped and followed. No wonder he had confidence as he waited in the desert. No wonder he had confidence as he fought so many battles. And it can be a comfort for us too. It can be a comfort for us too when we see how the nations of the world are today. Some of us, as, as Matthew's experiment pointed out, were born in one nation, perhaps far from here, and are now in another. And the systems and the world economy that made that travel and migration possible, well, they're now under some strain. We've seen disease and war in these last months and years. There's an energy crisis. People within countries are divided too. But in the end, it will not be like that. God will bring all nations together 
to worship him in peace. Keep your eyes on verse 9. I'm going to read a bit from Revelation 15 at the end of the Bible. When those who God brings through will sing this song. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And having prayed and asked God for some things and pulled reasons for why God would want to work with him and answer those prayers, and having understood the the massive horizons of God's plans and purposes in the world, in verse 11, David turns to who he is, to himself, and asks for God to teach him. Having seen the future and the glory that God deserves and will one day get, he asks for himself. He asks for himself that he would be taught. And he doesn't just mean fill my head with knowledge, give me knowledge and understanding, but it's a humble and deep request to be guided in the way. Did you see that? Teach me your way, Lord. Uh, There might be a few people here who uh, have seen The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've ever seen The Mandalorian. So The Mandalorian, is a few. Okay, all right. So I'm going to explain it. I'm sorry, you already know this, but I'm going to explain it for the other people that, that don't. The Mandalorian is a character from the Star Wars films. He's a very minor character in the Star Wars films, which the script writers are very happy about because they can invent all sorts of new things. And he basically travels around space, and he, he's sort of on his own, a kind of ultimate lone ranger hero. But every now and again, he comes across another Mandalorian. And they say, it is the way. Have you ever seen this? You know, it's, it is the way. And at the end, they say something profound to each other. It, it must be profound because of the tone of voice. You can't see their faces because they're inside these big helmets. It is the way. And then the other one will respond, it is the way. But actually, that, that, the idea is that that creed, that code, that, that understanding and belief in who they are and how they should live is utterly fundamental. And Christians, the first name before Christians were known as Christians, was the way. Before Antioch, the way. It's a way of life. It isn't just a set of knowledge. It isn't just a set of interesting things to listen to. If you can find the more interesting people to speak in the sermons. Be teachable. Be prepared to change. Following the way is hard. Be someone who's ready to stop doing some things. Be someone who's ready to start doing other things. It might not be comfortable. Uh, That's why Sam and the other elders get up here week by week and speak. It isn't just a set of truths we can get around. This is actually a training venue. Well, next week the playground will be the training venue. But this church is a place where we change, where we work at who we are. How do we do that? How do we do that, though, in a meaningful way that lasts beyond here when we go out and back to our, our homes and our workplaces and our schools? How can we change? Verse 11 carries on. Verse 11 tells us, Give me an undivided heart. Give me one supreme affection that all the others must adapt to. Give me an undivided heart. And this is another bump, by the way. Give me an undivided heart so that I can be afraid 
Now, you may be sitting there going, hang on, I didn't come to church today to be afraid. I want some comfort, please. Fear? Fear, That's that's a life, that's a a, a part of the way you're talking about? That's important? What's your your main aim? What what are you aiming for? I mean, you try telling in your next annual review or to a careers officer, uh, what's your main aim? What are you mostly for? I I want to be afraid. Where's that come from? I don't think they would know what to say. Why is fear a good thing? Most of the world around us would think it an unqualified bad thing. But David puts it right in the middle of his psalm here as a request. You see, fear concentrates the heart onto one thing. It is the beginning of wisdom. We know that from Proverbs. It makes things simple. And we know it in our lives today. We know that uh, today, fear of poverty may drive you to get a fixed energy deal this afternoon. Fear of an army may make you a refugee. If you see children coming off a water slide that was slightly too terrifying for them, let me assure you that at that moment they aren't ready for a discussion about anything else. They aren't ready for a discussion about how they're going to work with their next teacher. They aren't uh, ready for a discussion about whether they're going to eat their vegetables. Their minds are really concentrated by fear. But this isn't the same as terror. Generally, God does not strike us so dumb that we cannot speak. It's not like horror. Because what comes after fear here? Verse 12. Praise. Now you can't praise God if you're scared beyond words. That can't be what this is about. You see, wholehearted praise becomes possible if we fear God rightly. Our other affections are then ordered and secondary. Family, career, sports, relationships, they're all secondary. And where they would merge and mingle like a song about a footballer called Jesus. Let's be really clear in our hearts and in our minds about what is most important. If it means not singing along with the song with the rest of the crowd, then don't sing. Set God before yourself. You get to be on his side. If you, don't you want the most powerful and awesome being or person in the universe standing next to you at your side as you face the future. Of course, we need to think about how we behave when we're right next to him. That can be really daunting. But don't you want to be with him and on his side? Because God isn't just amazingly powerful. He loves greatly. As we saw in verse 5, so also in verse 13. Now, in order to understand the significance and the type of love that there is in verse 13, we actually, I think, best need to understand the four types of singer of a psalm. Firstly, there's the original singer, David. Secondly, there's the first choir, the first hearers, the people of that time. Fourthly, I will come back, I can count. Fourthly, there is us. What does it mean for us today? What parts can we say? What parts can we sing? What is different and what is the same? Some things are different. We can know God as Father, for example. But thirdly, and I think this best fits for for verse 13, is Christ, is Jesus himself. You see, Jesus stands at the centre of the Bible. Jesus stands at the centre of history. And we have to consider what we know of God in each psalm through Christ. And the word me comes through in our translations in verse 13 twice. So the question is, who is the me? 
Is it David? Well, yes. But this is delivered, this delivered from the death spit. That doesn't quite make sense if he's still alive because he's making the psalm, he's composing it. He's not dead yet. The same goes for the hearers in Bible times. While they are alive, the realm of the dead can only be a metaphor. And the same for us. We've got to be careful not to collapse ourselves into our understanding all the time. But Jesus, when he says this psalm, the New Testament is clear. Jesus did go to the place of the dead. In other words, he did die. And God did deliver him. After dying on a cross, God raised him up. And if you have any doubt of God's love today, then look at Jesus. He died, taking the punishment for sin. He died a cursed death. He died to take that punishment for your sin. His perfect obedience, his perfect following of the way, can be given in return to you. Today, if you don't know this love, this Jesus who could both experience this rescue and be this rescue for others, please find out more. Please come and talk to me, talk to Chris or Sam or Matthew. Please talk to any of us. We would love to talk to you about this amazing, powerful and loving God. So David, having uh, prayed and having remembered the character of God, including God's feelings and God's actions and doings, David is able to make his main request. Having lifted his eyes off his troubles and onto the God for all the nations that all can call to and is worthy of all praise from all nations and all parts of all of our hearts, David can face anything in the real world. He identifies his enemies. Suddenly they're in focus. He sees them very perceptively. He sees their character. We don't know exactly what he was facing at the beginning of the psalm, but now, well, it's clearer. There are bad people, some sort of mob or crowd, army against him. There's a number of points of David's biography this could fit in with. But we know they have not set God before them. And he contrasts their character with God's character. He knows who God is. He knows who they are. Verse 15 is actually taken from Exodus 34, verse 6, where God appears and announces who he is. He basically starts to explain himself. Who is he? The character of God that is about to give the Ten Commandments. Listen here, but look at verse 15. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is who he is. That is who he always is. And he's centred on it. He's the opposite of their enemies. Where God is gracious, they are ruthless. And in this contrast, in this calm, where he sees everything clearly, what is David's priority? Is it to shrug? Is it to step back? Negotiate some kind of a peace? His priority, his burning desire, is the reputation and the standing of God's name. 
He wants God to act so that others will be put to shame. Show your strength, God. Give a sign. He doesn't always ask for God to strengthen him. He wants the glory to go to God. There's a saying in in sport, in business, in many other teamwork that it's amazing what can happen if nobody minds who gets the credit. Well, there should be an even more famous saying that it's amazing what can happen if we all care about God getting the credit. The name of God is absolutely paramount for David and it should be for us too. Many of us take the wrong thing out of the David and Goliath story. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. A small, big one can beat a bad, a small, uh, a brave, small one can beat a bad, uh, big, small, we support the underdog. It's a British thing. I can't say it properly today. That's because that's actually not the point of David and Goliath's story. He was so upset at the defiance of the name of God by Goliath that he was prepared to risk it all. It was, just a, it was just a no-brainer for him. He was all out for the name of God. And in fact, we're nearly there. In fact, there are two names for the Lord here, two words that are nearly translated the same. Firstly, in the first verse and the last verse, you have Lord with little capital letters. Do you see that? And that is, that is Yahweh. That is the one who makes the big agreements, the title of God, like in that bit of Exodus. But then in Other places, there's a word that David uses, gets translated with the same characters, but it is a slightly different word. He uses it in verse 15, he uses it in several other places earlier in the psalm as well. It's a more familiar word. It's the kind of word that you use in a household to address the boss. They say the protocol when you meet the queen is first of all to say your majesty, but then if she wants to speak to you and converse with you, and she might not, but if she does, you would say ma'am. That's how the royal household, her servants, address her. And David uses both, and he's very comfortable with both. He has a close relationship. He describes himself as the servant and as the son of a mother who also served. The idea, I think, implied here in other translations is that she had been a maidservant in God's house, and he had grown up in that house. It was familiar to him. And people can be comfortable in church as well. People can be comfortable in church because we've grown up in it. You see our young people, they've grown up, they've been diggers, they've been transformers. Now they're igniting and doing whatever else is next and all those um, sounds and things that Sam can do when, when we're announcing their clubs. And they're at home, they're at peace. They're familiar and comfortable with, with God's household and being part of it. But I want to just add a warning because people can be comfortable for two reasons in a church. They can be comfortable because they know other people. And it can be like a club that we're part of. And we can enjoy kind of doing church together. We can even enjoy doing rotors sometimes, I've heard. I've heard. Or instead, we can be thrilled and motivated by the name of God. Having the same priorities as God, as the head of our household. Are we excited about his glorious reputation in Worcester Park? Are we excited about serving the true and living God? David was not driven for his own glory. He was driven for the glory of God. David was passionate about the name. He prized that and he longed for God to get the praise that his power and his love deserve. What about us? 
What thrills us? Are we delighted, first of all, to be able to be in God's household? The psalm starts in disquiet, doesn't it? There's something going on, we don't know what it is. And there's multiple requests, it doesn't feel that coherent. And we have all those reasons for why God should get involved. What are his characters like and what's happened in the past? And we can bring those promises and experiences into our own prayers. But it doesn't end with anything like the same tone. It ends with the perfect, completed tense. That you, Lord, have comforted me. That you, Lord, have helped me. It is as good as done. We don't know if the rescue has happened. It seems kind of unlikely that in the space of 17 verses, God would have answered the prayer of verse 16, so that verse 17 can change. But David is so confident that God will glorify his name and that that is what really matters, that he can be at peace, know that it is as good as done. God doesn't usually comfort us directly by saying, there, there, it will be all right. God's normal pattern is, to show us and remind us of who he is, of his character, and of his dealings in history. If you are a guest among us this morning, if you're visiting, you don't yet trust in the, this way for these things, know that you can call on God, whatever nation you're from, and that he is worthy of all of the praise of all of your heart. And if you are a regular, pray your requests with reasons and seek God with an undivided heart that loves the character of God more than anything else. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for showing us who you are and some marvellous patterns of how to talk to you and pray to you. Father, please help us to, to include our faith in our prayers. And please help us to prize and privilege the name of Jesus in our hearts. Above all of our other passions, all the things we give a lot of time to and thinking about and get excited about. May your name and your priorities and your work be the thing that thrills us most. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.